Welcome back to the University of Minnesota Extension's Nutrient Management Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Wilcox, Communications Generalist here at U of M Extension. In this episode, we're talking about soybean fertilizer management. We have four panelists here with us today. Can you each give us a quick introduction? Hi, I am Fabian Fernandez. I'm a nutrient management specialist uh, located in the St. Paul campus. This is Daniel Kaiser. I'm also a nutrient management specialist, also located on the St. Paul campus. And I'm Seth Nave, soybean extension agronomist. As Jeff Vetch, I'm a soil fertility researcher at the Southern Research and Outreach Center. There's more talk about farmers looking to foliar application of liquid fertilizer to soybean to increase yield. What research is out there on this practice? So, Jack, you know, this is an interesting one because we take a lot of grief on this, you know, particularly with a lot of our research we have, because a lot of growers are pretty well, you, well, you see some that are really sold on these practices, particularly related to foliar application of nutrients in season because they're already going across the field. So it makes sense just put a little bit extra in the in the sprayer and and, and put it on. But I've been involved with foliar application studies since I started my master's. That was back around 2001. Um, we had, just for you know context, a few trials out there where we're looking at NPK blends, and you know we really didn't see any consistent results. I mean, maybe in some sites that were low testing for phosphorus or potassium, maybe we saw a little bit with that, but. If you look at it in compiling the data, one of the interesting things back um, around 2015, I started working with the North Central Group where we put together a publication called Micronutrients for Soybean Production in the North Central Region. And there's kind of the similar questions around that time from just air, people in the area about compiling the data that we have on micronutrient applications. So a few things I just wanna bring up from this, if you look at the data, so I'm just trying to pull this up. Um, of the number of field trials, I mean, they're looking at about 100 field trials um, for boron, manganese, and zinc, where they had foliar applications, and then around 60 for copper. Only one a trial that was a manganese response trial, they saw a, a field location with a positive response. Now, one of the things here is, you know, some of these field trials may or may not have been targeted to specific uh, conditions, but there might be some benefit, but the, the issue is it's just not widespread. And if you look at the sales practices on a lot of these things, it isn't really targeted to specific conditions. So that's one of the things that makes this very difficult um, with looking at the data that there, one, isn't a lot of, of um, responsive data out there. And then two, if you look at kind of a lot of the sales tactics recently, it's been using um, it's been using plant tissue analysis for making some of these determinations, which you know, really looking at that data, it's kind of spotty at best too. So it's just historically, if you look at it, there just is no consistency of it. Although I know there's growers out there that just swear by the foliar application, but you know, one of the things that I really stress on that, if you're going to do it, just make sure you have the appropriate checks in place. Because one of the things I see with a lot of these foliar applications, it isn't necessarily one nutrient that we're applying. It's more of a soup um, or combination of many. So it's just um, not a high probability and kind of looking at, from my standpoint, if you've got growers that are soil testing, the best option really for them is to try to make some of the decisions up front with broadcast fertilizer applications because it's a whole lot cheaper per unit nutrient applied. Yeah, we at the University of Minnesota, we've been collaborating with some other researchers um, as the, on the agronomy side of this. So us agronomists do really apply a lot of really applied work collectively as a group of, of agronomists across the states. And 
Uh, we, you know, kind of take a different tact on this and just look at products that are being sold to farmers and try to evaluate those broadly and see where they're working and where maybe they're not working and maybe we'll help focus some of this, some of this attention for various products. And so we recently published a paper, I think we had 46 site years of data across 16 states. We tested six products, pretty common nation, national products, um, combination products on, on soybean. And we basically saw nothing. So really low response, um, you know, any of the any of the minor responses were probably just by chance because we had a large number of locations. Um, you know, we we fully expected that we'd see something somewhere. We had a couple of locations that ended up testing low on P or K that that showed a little bit of response. So as Dan mentioned, you know, we can help make up for some problems uh, after the fact. But as a as a prophylactic approach, as a yield enhancing um, application, you know, is is really what we were looking at in this particular study. We just found nothing there, so there was really disappointing results in terms of finding something that would help enhance yields in 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 good high production soils. And it's been one of the major questions that we've had too with a lot of these liquid fertilizer products is is can they actually penetrate the leaf? I mean, you you've got a wax layer on that leaf, you've got Essentially, when you start looking at most of these nutrients, they're salts, so they're going to be polar or charged. And if you know, kind of like dissolves like, uh, you've got two things essentially that are opposites. They aren't necessarily going to play very well to each other. So we know that in some circumstances, like urea, if you apply nitrogen fertilizer, that will readily penetrate through that wax layer. Uh, some chelates, um, certainly some of the iron chelates, um, with for ID looking for iron chlorosis, there there can be some benefit there. But for the most part, you know, it's one of the things that when we started looking at some of the data that I did, that's back in my master's, is that the kind of the general assumption that we had is that anything that we're seeing a benefit from was essentially washing off the leaf and going through the roots anyway. So, you know, that's kind of the struggle when I look at this. If it's it's doing that anyway, if again you have any soil test, why wouldn't you we want to make some of those decisions? up front than trying to be reactive on uh, some of what's going on. So, you know, that, that's the difficulty is, is always that big question is, um, is it actually getting into the plant? And the, uh, the other thing too, with a lot of these micronutrients that you have to realize is that the majority of them are immobile in the plant. So even if they would get into the plant, then the question is, do they translocate, which technically they shouldn't. So essentially, if you do have a problem, to me, the, the problem is going to persist. And we see that with iron chlorosis. Most of the time with foliar applications, we need to make the application before the problem comes into play. And then we may need repeated applications because that iron may not be translocating within the plant. Because So to me, if I look at this, it just isn't the most efficient way to apply an annual cropping systems. So you can, I think, make the argument for some perennial crops or some high value crops. I think it's more common, some of these foliar applications, but just for a lot of our annual cropping systems, it's just better off having it near the roots where the plant can feed off those nutrients versus trying to um, put it on then hope that it's going to get into the plant after a foliar application. Yeah, and I guess to just tag on a little bit more on there, I think, you know, in thinking about farmer profitability and thinking about this from a farmer standpoint, farmers in this economic environment that we're in with high rents and high crop values, um, farmers are pushing for high yields at, at you know, in an increased rate. You know, we were, we were always driven by yields, but right now it's just accelerated that and pushed that even harder. And so this idea that there's a product that could help enhance these yields is really attractive to farmers. 
And I think that's really where farmers are, are going with this, is this idea that these are yield enhancers. This is going to get us an extra four bushels or two bushels or five bushels on top of what they're already getting. Maybe it's a little bit of frustration with some of their soybean yields in the past um, and thinking that maybe that this there's some magic potion out there, or maybe or even that they have some deficiency that they didn't know about. So there's a lot of psychological reasons I think that farmers are really attracted to these things. But, you know, from my standpoint, if they really need to spend the money, I think it would be um, prudent, wouldn't you think, um, soil fertility guys, if they just spend it on fertilizer in the spring? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the thing I've really been stressing on that is just let's be proactive on what we do. And really with um, soybean, it's one of the things that soybean, they I mean, they do just as well, almost living off of residual fertilizer applications or applications made the years ahead of the crop versus directly ahead of the crop. Um, I mean, there's some some obvious examples where this isn't the case. If you've got a high pH soil that's low in phosphorus, I mean, every year applications make sense in front of every crop because of some of the issues with how phosphorus reacts. Um, but, you know, in most cases for where I've seen some of my higher yields, it's where I've really pushed for high yields or really pushed my fertility program ahead of the corn. And I think we get, we'll talk about that here in a little bit um, here, just with some of the other things that we've been doing. But it just, just seems like um, as long as you account for the bean crop in your fertility program at some point, it's generally okay. I mean, it, that essentially you don't need to be too aggressive in the soybean year. And we see that more and more, as Seth was saying, for growers trying to push for higher yields. It's trying to be more and more aggressive within um, the area. And certainly I think there's some advantages in some cases particularly with broadcast applications of P and K, but uh, some of these foliars, it just uh, gets kind of expensive and you're not putting that much nutrient on. And that's the other thing. You look at what the plant's taking up. It's it's just um, little to nothing compared to some of what, particularly potassium, what that plant would take up based on what a lot of these liquid fertilizer sources contain. I think George Ream called these manure in a bottle, if I remember right. Phosphorus and potassium have been long suggested in some cases for soybean. What about other nutrients uh, such as sulfur, nitrogen, et cetera? Yeah, that's uh, always a, a perennial question, I would say, in soil fertility for soybeans when we talk about nitrogen, especially um, the question of uh, how much nitrogen soybeans need and if we need to fertilize for, for them. And uh, we know that soybeans... Uh, they uh, produce their own nitrogen through nitrogen fixation, which is a, a great benefit for soybean, but they do also require quite a bit of nitrogen. And so the question is always, should we supplement some of their nitrogen needs with uh, nitrogen fertilizers? And so over the years, there have been many studies looking at that, and uh, I have done my fair share of those as well. We have looked at from many different angles, and we just always come back to the same thing that others have shown before, that uh, even if you get a response to nitrogen, it's pretty limited, and it's definitely not uh, financially viable. Uh, it's just too expensive for what you get. We did a study a few years back where we tried to target different things. One of them was the timing. Right, uh, we we know that nitrogen gets fixed by by the uh, rhizobium in in the in the roots, and so the the first question is, well, if we apply nitrogen, when do we do it so that it's most efficient? So we looked at that question, applying you know early on in vegetative stages, 
around the R1 when they start flowering and later around R3 when the when the pods start developing just to see if you know applying nitrogen early on makes the soybean plants lazy and they are not fixing nitrogen versus later and we basically found in one year applying nitrogen reduced the yield in one year it increased the yield and the third year, it did nothing. And that's pretty typical of what we see typically with nitrogen. It's just that there is not a consistent response. Uh, and the other interesting thing is that, uh, well, you, if you have a lot of residual nitrogen or you apply nitrogen early in the season, you can potentially reduce the amount of nitrogen fixed by, by the symbiotic relationship. That study basically showed that it really didn't make much of a difference. And so I think the best thing that we can do is let that biological process take place, fix as much nitrogen as the plant uh, can use, and then allow the soil also through the process of mineralization to supply nitrogen. And then uh, the plants are able to, to have all that they need. Um, and then the, the other side of that or, or question that typically comes up with nitrogen and soybeans is, well, high-yielding soybeans. Uh, that's where you're really pushing the limits, and, and that's where maybe applying nitrogen to help with protein production, things like that would be helpful. And so, again, we have looked at that question in high-yielding uh, soybean environments and uh, applying a substantial amount of nitrogen. And again, we, we saw the same results that we saw with the other studies where uh, in some years you do get, you know, a small bump, you know, two to three, maybe four bushels of yield difference with um, an application of nitrogen in very high yielding environments. But again, when you account for the cost of that additional nitrogen, you know that it just doesn't pay for it for itself. And so so my my recommendation is don't apply nitrogen to soybeans, let them fix nitrogen, and then allow the soil uh, mineralization process to supply the rest. Um, the one situation where I have seen some potential benefit, and again, it's not consistent, but where you may have a more, more chance of seeing a response with nitrogen is where we have had no nitrogen applied to the previous corn crop, and then we plant soybean with no nitrogen, and we do that for several years, where we are basically depleting on purpose, depleting the natural supply from the soil. That's where sometimes, and it's again, not consistent, sometimes we see a benefit. But again, when we are talking of practical situations, no farmer is not going to apply uh, zero nitrogen to their corn. Uh, so in essence, it's a moot point for, for commercial agriculture, we see this only in experiments where we are on purpose uh, starving the, the system. So it's one of the things too that I've looked at is, you know, with soybean, I think I mentioned this before, it's vegetative biomass becomes kind of an issue with soybean um, out in fields. And that's one of the things I've seen with some of my higher fertility treatments. And certainly we've seen this with manure. If you look at a lot of the data on manure fields, you tend to see soybeans, they get shoulder high. And, you know, you look at it in terms of with with soybean, to me, I want more pods. I want more beans. I don't necessarily want more leaves and more stems and all the other material out there. But I have seen it with sulfur. Um, you know, in, in 2008 and 2009, when I started in Minnesota, we actually had some studies looking at two by two banded with the planter. It was a combinations of um, nitrogen, phosphorus, and sulfur. It, it was like a 20-20-0-20 treatment. And a lot of the fields you could pick right down to the row uh, where we had that treatment on there. The soybeans were about six inches taller. 
Uh, we had some instances too where you could see them that they were turning at different rates. So the maturities were different. And of all the fields, when we come to sulfur, there was one that we had, and it was 2009, a field we had in, by Tileman, which was in the southeastern part of the state, which had not had a lot of sulfur applied to any of the previous crops. We picked up a four to five bushel yield response to the beans. Um, and I've tried to repeat that study over and over again. And the thing that we have more with more growers being more aggressive on sulfur in the corn years there's just some sulfur that's carrying over um, from one year to the next that uh, the soybean is feeding off. And I've done a fair number of um, sulfur studies with soybean the last five, 10 years. And in the only studies that I've seen where we've seen a response, a staples, we had um, an irrigated sand. Um, if you looked at the irrigation water, no sulfur in it. They're pulling out of a surface pond that didn't have a, a high sulfur concentration. And we saw a response at that location and that in any other locations, it, at best, it's about a bushel per acre. And my best results have always come from when I look at applying near the upper end of the recommended range for corn. It just seems to carry over the soybean the previous year. So that's one of the things, I um, mean, you know, I haven't looked at nitrogen as much, but the sulfur side of it, um, we see, you know, more than growers interested in it because of what they're seeing with corn, that the rates they're putting on corn in most cases, if you look at, we've done carryover studies, it is carrying over to the soybean crop. I've seen it. I mean, I've seen instances where I've seen a five bushel yield response where he applied ahead of corn where it carried over and the beans still picked up some of what was left from that previous year. But it seems to be gimby situations where we're more limited in terms of sulfur supply. So that's really the thing with sulfur. It just isn't a given across the state that you're going to see. It. And I would focus on crops that are going to be more responsive because it just seems to be more beneficial for those crops and the soybean can, um, with the how it's rooted, seem to take up some of what's left. Dan, you yeah. reminded me of something when you were mentioning sulfur and coming kind of back to, to nitrogen. The uh, the carryover nitrogen from, we, we've looked at the question too of, well, you know, if you're applying excess nitrogen to corn or you had a poor year in corn, then um, the, the carryover nitrogen, does that make a difference? And we have seen no benefit uh, on that either. And then... Um, in terms of vegetative growth, that's a, also an important thing to keep in mind, especially coming out of the last few years where we had droughty conditions. I've seen actually the problem of uh, reduction in yield when you have too much vegetative growth because the plants are basically uh, using up water faster and quicker, and so they run out of water uh, earlier in the season. And I have seen that also with corn. I mean, we are talking about soybeans too, but I've seen it in corn too, where um, in the last few years, if you had too much nitrogen and too much vegetative growth early on, those plants uh, ended up running out of water earlier and you actually reduce the yield. So instead of getting kind of a plateau, typically that we see with corn, we ended up having kind of more of a quadratic response where the yield starts to taper off at the higher end rates. Dan, I would add that, you know, I think growers here say, well, there's enough carryover from sulfur for applied to corn that we don't need to apply sulfur to soybean. But that doesn't mean that the, the rate of sulfur for corn has to be increased to get that carryover either. I think the standard practice that I see or hear about is 100 pounds of AMS, and that's more than enough for corn and more than enough carryover. And I think in many times that's more than we need in many of these fields, and it could be reduced significantly. Yeah, Jeff. And I mean, looking at the data, we've got um, the, the studies that I was quoting uh, where we were looking at, these are six-year trials where we had corn-soybean rotation. So we're applying 25 pounds of sulfur. So roughly 
that 100 pounds that you're talking about ahead of the corn crop. And um, we didn't see as much the first year, but years two and three is when we pick or the, the first soybean crop, I should say, been year two. Then years four and six is where we picked up some pretty sizable yield increases where we had sulfur applied ahead of the corn. And I, I agree with you. Um, I think if I'm in southeastern Minnesota or I'm on a situation where I'm in a more eroded area, like a 3% organic matter or less, I mean, 20 to 25 pounds of sulfur ahead of the corn should be enough to carry it through. And I think, I mean, kind of where you're at, Jeff, at Waseca on those those heavier, um, those high organic matter soils, you probably could look at about half that, maybe 15 pounds and still see some carryover because we know that a lot of those, those soils only require about corn, about five to 10 pounds on an annual basis. So it's amazing with sulfur, it doesn't take a lot and still the soil is supplying a substantial amount. It's just the problem is we've got a little bit of a window there where the soil can't supply it all, where we tend to have our problems with it. That's uh, just one of the things that I kind of stress to growers is uh, you look at it with, with sulfur is corn and alfalfa are the two main ones. If you look at the majority of central to southern Minnesota that I would focus on, uh, the rest of the crops, it just doesn't seem like there's any consistency in our data. I think a lot of that has to deal with how we going onto these fields where growers have previously applied sulfur that the, the concentrations are elevated, that these other crops, they don't need a lot and they're just being able to pick up and scavenge what they need in the soil from what was previously applied. And just to restate what you said earlier, um, Dan, is that, you know, soybean is really, really efficient at utilizing these mineralized nutrients. And in fact, it doesn't, in, in many cases, it doesn't seem to work, you know, take up as well in, in season or preseason than than previous. So, you know, I it, some of this may be even related to this factor too. So, um, you know, and, and Jeff, before the our talk here, reminded me that I was part of another study where we did an NNS study with the same group of folks. And we found very similar response to what, what Fabian and Dan have talked about with nitrogen and sulfur and soybean is that very rarely did we see anything. Um, and I've been working on nitrogen forever. And I've had a real interest in increasing the quality of soybeans, increasing protein level. And even nitrogen does a poor job of, of doing that. Uh, sometimes we can get a yield bump. Sometimes we can get protein, both rarely um, and never do we see both coincidentally. So um, there's definitely some, um, you know, some trade-offs here. And then one thing I did, did want to jump back on, another thing is this, this whole question about canopy development is really, really interesting to me. And it's honestly, as a soybean, you know, agronomist and physiologist, I think the, our biggest you know, the holy grail in soybean is really trying to figure out the right canopy for the right year. And if you could design the growth of your individual soybean for the weather you're going to have that year, that's the way we get our yields. Dan's absolutely right. Sometimes we get too big a canopy. The soybean puts way too much effort, too much energy into building that that big um, canopy. And then it doesn't, it isn't able to fill the pods. It doesn't set as many pods. I mean, every farmer gives examples of these two feet tall soybeans that they harvested that were, you know, 50 or 60 bushels or, you know, six feet tall soybeans that yielded 20. So this is a huge problem in soybean. We get too big a canopy. We rip through too much water, like Fabian said, or we get a lodge and white mold and, and other uh, problems that, that, that ding us. On the other hand, we do have to have a good canopy to absorb light and store resources to mobilize to the seed at the end of the year. Um, and so if, if we knew exactly what kind of weather we would have, I think we could do a little bit better job. But, but sometimes the soybean is doing some funny things out there where it, it's getting tricked into either thinking it's got too long a season and it, it needs to grow another couple nodes 
or it it feels like things are really tough and it just needs to hang out and put on pods now at this kind of at you know at 10 nodes and so i think there's an opportunity to learn here and move forward both from a breeding and genetic side and and from a management side to figure out how to how to build the right canopy for the right year and i don't know much about physiology seth but uh, one of the issues too i think is that uh, when you have too many leaves you end up with a whole bunch of leaves underneath the canopy that they just sit there, use resources, and do nothing for the plant or for producing the seed, correct? That is correct. But there is some really good research that looks at the energetics of that. And they've basically determined that the soybean pretty efficiently reabsorbs the nutrients from those lower leaves. And even though it, it they come at some cost, even though they're shaded for a lot of the year, the soybean actually is able to basically, you know, kind of like a senescence type process where it pulls those back and the findings indicate that that probably isn't as big of a deal, probably as, you know, you know, height, height cost money or cost resources, of course. But I think also this water thing that you mentioned is really important. Are there any nutrients or any other practices that you would not suggest for soybean? Yeah, it's an interesting question because I sometimes think it's a lot easier for me to kill the soybean plant than it is for me to increase yield with a lot of my studies. So that's, you know, one of the things we kind of look at with it um, is... You look at things like boron, um, I've had some pretty good success about inducing boron toxicity. And that's one of the things that you hear a lot of people talk about, because a lot of times you start seeing dry weather conditions, you pull a tissue analysis and just boron and dry, low boron concentration and dry weather tend to go together. So then foliar applications or applying, you know, some other treatment. Um, if you overdo it, that tends to be kind of a real knife's edge when it comes to um, toxicity. So that's one of the things that, you know, does tend to come up. Um, you know, I am looking right now at potash um, chloride. That's, you know, roughly 50% of the material is chloride. If you're buying potash fertilizer, it's it's slightly less, but it's pretty close. And, you know, soybean, our northern varieties are not tolerant to chloride applications. So we're seeing this. If you look at Morris, um, you know, some Crookston, Lamberton, Western Minnesota, seeing issues with chloride being carried over from one year to the next from high applications. And it was like around 2014, it tipped me off. I was at uh, Morris looking at some of my long-term plots and it was just a stair step where I thought it was actually a rate increase, but it was actually the opposite. As he went to lower rates, the beans were taller. And as he went to higher rates, the beans were shorter and it showed up in yield. And it's not something you're going to see always. Um, if I look at Waseca or I look at, you know, Southeastern Minnesota, I look at my data and I might be catching maybe a bushel lower yield with some of these higher application rates. If growers got 70, 75 um, bushels, if they had, you know, 69 or 74 bushels, would they even notice that? I mean, that's kind of one of the things that's that one's a hidden one. And it, it can be really severe if you put on high rates like I like to do is I kind of like to salt the earth when it comes to some of the uh, the rates we're applying um, with chloride just to induce the problem. And you can see some pretty substantial yield reductions. But in most cases, growers, if they are seeing it, it's it's probably so little that they would never really notice it. Yet you're spending money on fertilizer that's actually seeing a cut and yield doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. So it's one of the things that I'm kind of wrapping that up now. We'll probably look at some more data with that. I've got some information in the um, the soybean fertilizer bulletin talking a little bit about um, just trying to limit rates. If you're putting any potash ahead of soybeans, uh, particularly in the western part of the state, I just try to stick to about 100 pounds or less and just be more aggressive in year Years where you have corn, wheat, um, some crops that tend to handle it better. Um, and I do have data now looking at fall versus spring application. A lot of the studies that we were looking at were a fall applied potash. 
and we're still seeing the issue, but it does tend to reduce significantly the amount of chloride in the plant um, with a fall application, but it, I don't think it necessarily eliminates the problem. So those are kind of a, a couple good examples. Um, the other one is starter. Um, a lot of growers have starter on the planter. You have the units, um, you want to look at boosting yield, um, increasing early growth. You see the same effects, these effects in corn, uh, why not soybean? And one of the things that you have to realize is that soybean is pretty sensitive, the seed to salt, ammonia, anything near in the seed furrows. So seedling damage becomes kind of a problem with that. And phosphorus is kind of the main one. We see growers just trying to supplement phosphorus on high pH soils. And no, there's no phosphorus product out there that doesn't contain nitrogen. So that's kind of my general concern with that. And we are starting some work this year. I do have a set of furrow jets that I'm putting on. Um, so I'm going to kind of play around looking at low salt fertilizer sources compared to probably use 721.7 instead of 1034.0 for the higher salt mix. But just seeing um, with these dual side bands, kind of what I'm expecting to see is pretty similar results to on-seed placement. So there's a few things out there I mean, I'd avoid. I think those are some some couple of good examples. Um I mean, really, it's it's one of those things that you, you think about soybean being something that you can just fertilize and kind of forget in some of the crops. But you do have to have some thought, I think, into it because there are some things that can go backwards on you. So that's it's one of the things that um, just more fertilizers isn't necessarily better, particularly for a soybean crop. Yeah, Dan, you know, I've, I've seen that uh, what you mentioned earlier, that kind of tailing off of the yield response to potash on occasion in soybean fields as well and two or three different studies and Often it's not uh, significantly different, but you just notice a bushel or two, maybe three bushels less as you get to those really high rates of K uh, put on in front of soybeans, either in the fall or in the spring. And then I think back to some of the studies we did in the 90s when I was uh, first came here. Uh, John Schmidt, a grad student of Mike Schmidt's, we did a study looking at variety differences in soybeans with and without different rates of manure. And there was always a couple varieties that did poorly with higher rates of manure. And whether that was a chloride effect, whether it was just too much biomass growth, as you mentioned, Seth, and then you get white mold. I know we had white mold in some of those because we'd scored it for white mold. We had lodging issues and stuff like that. But there's other factors. And and I think if there's something that you don't want to do a manure, it's put or don't want to do for soybeans from a fertility standpoint, is to put a high rate of manure on right in front of them. Are there any last words from the group? Well, as I said kind of previously, it's I don't want to have this emphasis that what I'm saying here is that we should just forget about soybean. I think they need to be a part of the plan when you come with your overall fertility program. But I think with direct application of fertilizer, I mean, I, you know, we talked a lot about potash. It's what I see more growers interested in because soybean removes more potassium on a per unit bushel basis than corn. So you can actually see the the pounds per acre. If you look at a two-year rotation, probably about two thirds of what's removed in that rotation comes from the soybean year versus phosphorus. It's the opposite where the corn removes more. So you know, there's a greater emphasis that we need to be applying potassium directly ahead of the soybean, but it isn't as simple as that. And that's one of the things I said, it, soybean frustrates me from a research standpoint, because some things that I think that should be simple that we should see that it tends to be over more complicated just because of how it impacts their growth. So it isn't as simple like corn a lot of times that we just put it on and if it doesn't utilize it, it doesn't necessarily negatively impact it, but it, and it would be available for the next crop where soybean, it can be the opposite. And um, just trying to balance some of these growth issues. I mean, I've seen some of the things that Seth was talking about in some of my sulfur trials, um, you know, looking at just seed size coming through the combine as I'm sitting in there taking samples with the sulfur plots, the, the plants 
about the same height out there, but you see bigger seed coming through. So it's amazing to me and how the plant itself adjusts to some of this stuff and, you know, kind of how it, it reacts to it. But then yet again, again, more is not better when applying to it. So it's it's a, a balance and it's more of, to me, more of a integrating system than corn is even in terms of trying to maintain some of these higher yields. And it's it's more of a challenge to me on the research side trying because more growers want to know what that secret is. And I just don't have a good answer to it just because... It's, again, a lot easier for me to see some of these negative effects sometimes than it is these positive effects from some of what should be um, beneficial applications of nutrients for that that given crop within a given year. Dan, I would also emphasize that, you know, if a grower picks up a rented piece of ground and he runs some soil tests and comes back and his potash is low or medium, I mean, I wouldn't be scared to put potash on soybeans in front of them. I mean, if it the critical values that I've seen, Dan, you can you can interject too as well. On here in the glacial till soils in Wasika, around 150 part per million is kind of the critical value. Maybe a little bit less than that in southeast Minnesota on the lust soils, and probably in that 90 to 100 part per million at Becker on the irrigated sands. Um, if you're if you're below that, putting some out there and like you said, Dan, maybe 100 pounds of potash or 60 pounds of K2O, we've seen some good yield responses in soybeans to to potash. Yeah, and I guess I don't want to make it seem like I'm saying not to apply it because you're exactly right, Jeff. If it's low, your soil test is low, apply it. The issue really boils down to for anybody doing maintenance rates on something that might be towards that high testing range, it just wants to put removal-based applications, is that, um, you know, some of those applications, you know, looking at it, you know, you see they might be giving you a little bit of a ding, something you're not necessarily measuring. It just might be better off putting on ahead of a different crop. So, if it's low, apply it. If it's if it's not, I think then there was kind of where that thought has to come into play is that it's it's not necessarily beneficial year after year for a removal-based application to, to put it ahead of the soybean crop. The only, as a token of a true agronomy guy here, I'm going to throw this out is that, you know, just to remember with soybean is that, as we all know, yield is made at the very end of the year and kind of that late late August, early September timeframe. And that's when the yields occur. And um, that's make it or break it time. So we got to get the crop to that point. Um, and so do the best we can. We talked a little bit earlier about trying to, you know, get soybeans off to a good start. I think that's a very good idea it isn't as critical as what we end up with the end of the year, but we don't have control over that. So I keep coming back to what do we really have control over? And honestly, as much as I hate to say it, it's variety selection. Farmers have to continue to do the best job of variety selection. That's how you're going to get the yields. And it's just amazes me that that farmers are willing to add a bunch of products and secret sauce on things, um, but then they're going to buy some cheap seed from their neighbor you know, and that that's not always the case. So that's maybe a, a little bit of a narrow uh, stereotype, but um, I think it does happen occasionally. And and uh, it's it's we we just have to remember that it's it's the yield driver is really the variety out there. And the, the soybeans are not there isn't as much we can control with soybean as 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 corn. And so you know, keeping it simple is still a good idea doing a good job of, of just managing that soybean crop at the very least is, is really what, what farmers need to do. And I think some of the things that Dan is talking about is tweaking this around the edges is very, very important. But soybean 101, get them, plant them into decent soil and get them going as early as we can. And then just uh, just take care of them for the rest of the year. All right, that about does it for this episode of the Nutrient Management Podcast. We'd like to thank the Agricultural Fertilizer Research and Education Council, or AFREC, for supporting the podcast. 
Thanks for listening.